Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Called Podcast. Tonight, the truly cool bass player of Les Savvy Fav and the 8G band with Late Night with Seth Meyers and owner of French Kiss Records, Sid Butler. Sid, how are things? Um, things are good under the circumstances, um, but overall, I'm, I'm happy to have a job and I'm happy to have music. Well, it's also playoff time. What series are you most excited for? Uh, you know, I, I have to say I did stay up late last night to watch the Capitals beat Hurricanes. Um, as I've gotten older, it's harder to stay up later and wake up early with the kids. But, you know, now that hockey is pretty much full-time right now, it's going to be my new side hobby. <laughs> um, but to answer your question, I don't know. I, I think... Toronto, maybe? I don't know. There's, it's all pretty tight. I'd like to see Pittsburgh lose always. <laughs> and it would be even sweeter uh, if they lost to the Canadians, in my opinion. It would, it would be even sweeter. Um, I do love the Canadians. They're my second favorite team. So it's... it's uh, I have a great... Yeah, yeah. I have many hockey stories, but yes. <laughs> what, 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 what is your best hockey story? I'm sure we'd love to hear it. Oh, I have many. So my here's one. So when Ovechkin was a rookie, um, uh, I no one cared about the Capitals at all. And a friend of mine was working for the NHL and asked me to blog during the season as a sort of celebrity blogger because they couldn't get any other real celebrities to actually write about the Capitals. So at the end of the season, I was invited down to meet Ovechkin when he won um, rookie of the year and all the other um, trophies that he acquired that season. And so I was sort of waiting in line to meet him, get my picture taken. I was with my wife and we went out to get a picture taken and I looked really awkward and stupid. And my wife put her arm around his shoulder and then like, okay, next person to come, you know, get your picture taken with them. And then my wife wouldn't leave. <laughs> and they kind of giggled back and forth and, I was like, what are you doing? She was, she was like, well, it's Ovechkin. What, I'm not going to leave you for Ovechkin. And so we kind of walked away. And I was like, what was that about? You wouldn't let go of him. And she was like, well, his back is like a rhino. I've never felt a back in my life even close to that. It was just muscle. <laughs> so we laughed about that. And then about two weeks later, uh, she got a friend request from Ovechkin. Um, which was even weirder. I was like, how did Ovechkin find you? And then she was like, accepted it. And then like, they were like, not talking, but she was like, yeah, Ovechkin just liked one of my photos or my posts. I was like, this is too freaking weird. So we lived in a small apartment in the Lower East Side at the time. And like, I was across the room being like, tell him to friend, you know, whatever the, you know, Facebook friend me, whatever it was, it was so long ago when Facebook was a little more relevant. Uh, but it was really funny. Uh, that being said, um, his mother is a big fan of my wife. So I think that's how the connection later, like his mother was like, oh my God, you got a picture taken with her. I love her work. My wife is an actor, so it was nice to, um, so then became this small world. All of a sudden, Ovechkin's mother really liked my wife's acting work and uh, was a big fan of hers. So but it was a moment where I was like, I feel like that movie Semi Pro with Will Ferrell, well, like his the guy that his girlfriend <laughs> hanging out with is his hero. It was a little weird. 
But then last year, when or two, in 2008, when they won the cup, he was on, Ovechkin brought the cup to Fallon. And I was upstairs, and all the security guards and cops that worked at 30 Rock knew, obviously, that was a massive Caps fan, and snuck me down to Fallon to Ovechkin's dressing room. And there's this great photo of me holding the cup next to a Dutch you know, with the, the biggest smile on my face I've ever had. And uh, it was funny that the NHL security guards were like, you can't lift the cup over your head. Um, and I was like, don't worry, that's totally sacrilegious. I would never do that. Um, but a Dutch can just like, go ahead, kiss it, kiss it, kiss the cup, kiss it, kiss it. <laughs> it was just like all these, like, you know, uh, boomerangs of me just kissing the cup next to a Dutch can is really funny. Well, what would you say? Sort of been in my life since he's been in my life for a long time. Well, what would you say the moment that you became a hockey fan was? Um, I I grew up in Washington D.C. and when I moved there when I was five, um, it was impossible to get the Washington football team's new name, the Washington football team. Uh, it was impossible to get tickets to see them play, and you could easily get tickets to the Capitals. Um, they had just started their franchise. And you get tickets. So my family bought season tickets as just something to do and to support the Capitals. We do nothing about hockey. And then all of a sudden we just became obsessed with it. And it's sort of just all, everything about hockey and sort of entered the bloodstream probably about six or seven. And to this day, my family is obsessed. Well, I'd like to take you way back now. How did your time in D.C. shape who you would become as an artist? Oh, I would say 100% changed everything. Uh, you know, I had that sort of magical moment when, like, the cool older kid handed you a tape or a record or a CD or a moment. Um, but I was, you know, in sixth grade, <laughs> in the sixth grade, and someone handed me, and my sister's boyfriend or something, or girlfriend handed me a tape and said, oh, this is cool music, you should listen to this. And half, you know, side A was, like, dismiss the cure, um, I come with Bunny Men, um, a lot of English bands, and the other side was all DC punk. And just to have this sort of breath of all the different kinds of music that existed, and people were making these amazing songs for sort of a revolution. And oddly enough, all these bands were from, happened to be from DC. And the great thing about DC is at that time was that you had all these churches and basements and community centers or outdoor venues that were having these bands play for free um, all ages. So all of a sudden, me and my friends started going to see these song, these bands perform. And then the scene was so positive. I mean, literally, there's a you know, guy that started the sub-scene called Positive Force. But you had all these bands and all these people in the community all trying to support each other constantly. And it gave you a lot of confidence in being able to create a band or make music or make art without any severe judgments or penalties. You know, there was no record deal. There was no nothing. It was just a bunch of kids with crappy instruments just making sounds. Um, and all your friends would come and see you play. So you learned from their reaction and you sort of, you know, all of a sudden you could go on tour and all of a sudden you could play other shows with these other bands that had been doing it. And it, it just really shaped the community um, and my creative self, I would say. Um, and Ian McKay was just this sort of legend in this world. Um, and I happened to be good friends with his little sister, Amanda. So we were in a band in high school together. 
and just being that close to that energy was was transformed the rest of my life for sure. What were some of the most exciting shows that you attended in the early days in DC? God, there were so many great shows. I mean, you know, the, the there was one show in particular. There's so many. There was one. I mean, God, one moment. I, I can share with you that changed my life about what you can do during a live show. And I've told this story a couple times before, but it, a lot of bands, when they play and they mess up or something doesn't go right, they panic. You know, oh my God, you know, why'd you do that to me? Or they look at their bandmate, like if they're String Broke or, or Ant Blue. It, it, I've seen so many bands take it personally, and you see the dysfunction on stage just fall apart. Um, but I remember Fugazi was probably playing in front of 2,000 people at a free show on the Capitol, um, the steps of the Capitol. And during the middle of Blueprint, the song Blueprint, um, the power went out. And it, the power went out as if someone had unplugged it at the exact right beat in time. And they didn't blink an eye. They were so cool. And they were just like, whatever. And Brendan Canty sort of kept playing the drums and kept playing the beat. And he just sort of like, he kept the audience engaged. And there was not a moment of panic or stress or it was just everything is going to work out and who cares? And then they figure out the power situation. And then all of a sudden, without even looking at each other, he did a drum roll right into the end of the song. And the lyrics quote, never mind, never mind. And it was just so appropriate. And everyone just went bananas. And I just remember that moment of just like, there was no panic. Everything was just so, it was almost done on purpose, but it wasn't. And ever since then, I've seen other bands that are huge bands mess up. And then it actually becomes an endearing quality to that moment or to that set where the audience actually becomes closer to the, the band. Um, I've seen just, you know, Arcade Fire do it. I've seen Interpol do it. I've seen Coldplay do it. And you kind of just kind of go, oh, wow, even these huge bands that have traveled and toured and done all these things and have all these people working for them, they practice for hours and hours and hours, still mess up, and it's okay. Um, and it's just sort of, it was sort of a nice moment in my musical life to be like, oh, well, things blow up sometimes, and that's okay. Yeah, that was a huge show in my life, that moment. I was like, what? What just happened? Oh, my God, they're not freaking out. Oh, my God, on top of that, they know when to come back in. And then they elevated the audience to go bananas. It was a nice moment in music, in my musical history. Well, why did you decide to go to Rhode Island for post-secondary? Um, I went to a, a weird school, uh, sort of my, my high school. When I was a sophomore, I think they realized that I wasn't uh, gifted mathematically and or that my, my, my love fell in the arts. So they sort of started to put me on the path for um, an art career. Uh, and um, so when I applied to Rhode Island School of Design and I got in, I was, I was like, oh, this is, you know, one of the best art schools in America. So I was very happy to get in and had a great time in Providence. I think it's a great, there's a great joke that we have, which is what's the best part of Boston? Providence. Um, it's like, you know. It's like an inside joke, but yes, uh, it was a great place to go to school. But yeah, my, my high school days, they kind of said, you know, you're not so good at that. Your brain is outside the box constantly. You don't think like the rest of us, so you should go to art school. 
Well, studying film during your time at the Rhode Island School of Design, did this inspire just how electric and visual the band Lake Sabby Fav would become? I, I think so, not on purpose. It wasn't a conscious decision, but we're all a bunch of RISD nerds that were surrounded by this incredibly creative and very focused, um, unique situation. You know, Brown University is right next to RISD, and you're sort of getting all these very very hard-working, very creative people all sort of competing with each other in a healthy way. And so when Les Five started, you sort of started to compete with the bands that were in Providence at the time, um, but also compete. And we also just made a band to entertain ourselves. So we never started out Les Savvy Five with the idea of making it. It was just a way for us to have more creative outlets, both visually um, physically, just, you know, I, I remember when we first started writing songs, we're like, this is how you write a song. And then as the band developed and we wrote the, the EP Rome, that's when we realized that you can do anything you want. And it was like this light turned on and we could just, let's just play a song for 10 minutes or let's play the one riff over and over again. Or, and as we started playing shows and had no audience, we played for five or 10 people, we started to realize how to entertain ourselves and we would play for ourselves rather than the audience. Um, and that's something that we still do now whenever we do get together and play. It's like, a, it's like, what did you, oh, that was a cool dick. What did you just do? Or that was cool, Tim. Would you brought that couch out and decided to do that. Or Harrison, that was a great fill. I've never heard it before. We started sort of supporting each other live and creatively. And, and um, But yeah, we never started out to be a band to make it with laminates and a bus that we kind of frowned against that idea. Was there ever a moment that you were going to put down the bass and just start making films? Um, I did some videos um, for some of our bands. Uh, I actually just wrote a treatment for one of our French Kiss bands um, to still make a video. Uh, my wife and I just filmed a short film um, that we made. Uh, and we just sent it out to a bunch of festivals. Um, I'm still sort of actively, creatively going. Um, the reason why I was late for this for this podcast was my wife and Seth Jabor, who plays guitar in the Sally Five. We just finished a 10 song holiday record. Um, we have a side band called Office Romance um, that we kind of started as a joke five years ago and, and made a three song EP. Uh, but then we realized during COVID that we should finish the, another one. <laughs> so we actually just finished that meeting today. Um, and now we'll come out this, this fall and, and holiday season. Uh, but it's been totally insane. But yeah, we, we still keep making stuff. Well, how did French Kiss Records come to be? Uh, it's very... Uh, so growing up in the world of Discord in the 80s, uh, I just hung out with, in that house and I hung out with those people and realized sort of it, I was always interested in the business side of music. Um, my personality is a little bit controlling and I need to know everything that's happening to feel safe. So as the band started, I started calling up Ian and calling uh, this guy, Coy Rusk, who runs the label Touch and Go, and just asking their opinion on things. And they were very curt and very blunt and very honest and really helped me shape French Kiss. But uh, there were some labels that were interested in us and putting out our records, Sub Pop and uh, some other majors. But when it, you know, push come to shove, I was like, let's just do it ourselves. And you know, we can just create it as it goes, which sort of, it felt very less self to do that. Uh, and then we just went on tour and started seeing bands that were in the same position. Um, and we decided to keep putting the records out. And I 
to be honest with you, if you had told me when I was a freshman or sophomore in high school when my teachers were telling me I was a delinquent, and then I would have meant anything um, to have run French Kiss Records for so long, to be playing bass on Late Night with Seth Meyers and have seen the world, <laughs> I would, uh, I'd like to laugh in their face a little bit. Well, now you get to be a part of the coolest band ever assembled for Late Night, in my opinion. How did your relationship with Fred Armisen come to be, and that band in general? Um, it's totally serendipitous and just an amazing, it's amazing, to be honest with you. I can't begin, when I walked into that, when I got the job, I couldn't believe it. And then when I walked into the room and I saw my bandmate and I saw Marnie Stern and I saw Eli Janney, I was just like, are you kidding me? I've known these people, I've known Eli since I was 14 years old. He was part of that DC Discord punk community and we'd be going to show, we were going to shows together. Um, and he's just this, you know, he was very entrenched in that community producing records and, and being in bands and you know his brother was in right to spring so he's very in, involved in that world and then uh so to answer your question about fred so we fred came to see les Fav play um but we had known of each other from his days at Trenchmouth. he was in a punk band called Trenchmouth, based out of chicago and as he started to do these really funny videos everyone sort of knew them in the touring scene um you go to someone's house and someone say hey man did you see this fred armison video and they put it in their vhs player and you'd watch it and drink beer and whatever you do, you do. long story short uh so fred came to see this every thought play years ago with our friend david cross and then we just became buds and we asked him to uh, play drums on our record let's stay friends and when seth myers asked him to sort of put a punk band together he's like oh i know the perfect guys so i got a call one day at the blue saying hey i mean you know we're putting this band together i'll see you at rehearsal on tuesday and i was like uh what so i flew from los angeles i was in los angeles at the time and had a bunch of employees at french case and you know but yeah so basically fred submitted me and seth um and then about a month later, he hired Marnie. But I've known Marnie since I was 22. I knew her when she went to NYU in, in the 90s. So it's like this really weird, insane band of hipster indie rockers that have been doing it for so long. But I think it's become very successful. We write about six to eight pieces of original music a day, and we do it in about an hour. Um, it's pretty nuts. And our, we our references are so fast. We can go, okay, let's sound like a Fugazi song. Let's sound like a Dixie song or a T-Rex song. We all know exactly what that means. So we can just reference it and everyone just sort of pulls it out of their, their library of, of the years that they've been playing music. Does it feel natural to play in the AG band, having your longtime bandmate, Seth Jabber there? Uh, yes. Yeah, Seth Jabber, he's, I mean, since 17. I mean, nuts. We, we write so quickly together. Uh, so it's, it's hysterical. Um, yeah, we just wrote these, these holiday songs and they're all eclectic and all over the place, but it was, we, we just kind of lock in and he's so good. Seth Jabor is probably the best riff person creator I've ever met in my life. Uh, just it's un his mind for melody is just remarkable. Uh, and it's been very easy to write with him um, in my life. And I, it's, it's, it's hard for me to think about writing with anyone else. When I tried in the past, it hasn't been very successful. 
Do you ever get a say who gets the guest in the AG band, or does Fred do a lot of this? No, we don't really get a say. We, we put a list together when we first got on the show, and they started rotating the drummers. They're like, oh, my God, it'd be amazing to get Ringo. <laughs> it'd be amazing to get all these drummers. Uh, but basically, there's a uh, producer on the show who is very connected to the drumming world, um, and it's his job. And I'm actually really glad that he's, he's done it. He's done a great job bringing a lot of the eclectic drummers uh, from, you know, gospel drummers to punk drummers to, you know, legendary drummers like Chad Smith from the Chili Peppers. Have you noticed an uptick in interest for Les Savvy Fab since the AG band started up? You know, I honestly don't know that answer. Uh, I wish I did. I, I'm still so insecure and neurotic about Les Savvy Fab because for the first couple of years, no one liked this, and people would throw beer cans at us and boo us off the stage. So I think in those early years, they had a connected to an insecurity. So whenever anyone shows up to a Lissabi Fox show, whether it's 1,000 people, 10,000 people, or 200 people, I'm like, I can't believe these people showed up. Did you hear our music? Are they, did you know we do? Um, so it's been really fun. And like every show, I'm like, oh my God, people showed up. It's just a weird thing I still have. I'm very grateful that people listen to Les Fog and still consider us a band worth coming to see. Are you excited for the future of Les Fog And what can we expect from you guys coming up? Uh, Les Fog, we have two shows next year booked. One, we're playing Riot Fest in Chicago, and then we're playing Primavera in Barcelona. Um, we're very excited about those shows and being a part of that and being asked for it. Um, we are the laziest sons of bitches when it comes to writing new songs. Um, it's a bit of a, an irony since Seth and I write so quickly. Um, it's Everyone else has very full lives with children and careers, so it's kind of hard to be like, hey, on Friday, um, can we all meet up? No, I can't do Friday. How about Saturday? No, I'm glad it's like just scheduling our time to all be in the same room at the same time to write new music seems to be impossible. Uh, that being said, you never know, but that's why we're so excited about these shows in the future because they're so far away that the family calendar is not booked that far. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we can, we were able to play those shows. Did you like it when Seth Myers took the show in a more political direction? Um, I did. I think, you know, when the first year of the show, we were all, everyone was trying to figure out what the show was going to be. And the producers were incredibly supportive in letting that happen. I think they kind of knew going in that the show would be kind of a, a, a get to know Seth, get to know NBC, get to know everybody and see what it was. And once they cut out his sort of standing monologue and put him at, a, at the desk and closer looks started to hang out and, and, and take off each like once a month then it was once every two weeks then it was once a week and now it's I think three or four you know it might be every night if not definitely three of the four nights um, I'm really glad I'm really glad he has a voice I think Seth is a really very smart human being very quick and sharp and I've, I think that he's really come into his own identity and taken his show to um, a, a new height and you know, one of these days, I hope he's nominated for an Emmy for his, his job on Seth Myers. But uh, you know, I, I think that he, he, I'm very glad that he's taken it in a, in a more political um, path. I think he was forced to under the current situation. 
And boy, he's asked that question, would you sacrifice um, not having Trump as president? And he would say, I would rather do, I would rather have a completely different life if Trump was not president and close to it didn't exist. I mean, it, we can't wait for the day when we have some new material to write. <laughs> it's not based on this nightmare that America is living in right now. Well, what do you make of what's happening on the streets right now? And do you see real change coming from this? Um, I, you know, I think there has been change. It's already happened. Uh, unfortunately, it took a long time to get here and people had to die. Uh, but the energy in America that I've seen is really polarizing. I think you have people now that didn't really understand Black Lives Matter who now, I think, understand it. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that they do. I think there's been some some laws that have changed because of it. I mean, just recently, a high school, you know, that Robert E. Lee is the high school in Maryland has changed their um, school name to John Lewis. I, those are real positive changes. I, I think um, those are all, you know, the, the these are good changes. <laughs> um, I think just understanding the awareness. Um, I think the uh, police brutality in America, there's some real bad apples out there. And I think that the unions and, and some of the police uh, uh, institutions need to change how they train and, you know, um, support their police officers. Uh, I was pulled over actually last weekend and the cop couldn't have been nicer. You know, treated me with total respect, didn't give me a ticket, sent me and my family on my way. Um, and I can't imagine if I was uh, a black family driving through Connecticut, um, it might have been a completely different situation. So, you know, I think it's a real issue. Um, but I think change is in the air for sure. Um, and the sooner we can get this, this administration out, the happier I think people overall will be. In the worst segue ever, how did your book, Who Farted Wrong, come to be? Uh, it's not the worst segue ever. It's a great segue. Uh, (laughs) so the book, um, was a a friend of mine, uh, he, there's a band called Cold War Kids. And, uh, at one point French Kiss tried to sign them. And during the sort of me trying to sign them, I hung out with them a lot, uh, and became friends with them. But Matt Mouse, the bass player and I became pretty close and he's a phenomenal artist. And I gave him a drawing of one of my silly drawings and someone happened to be at his house in LA and was like, oh, this is a funny drawing. Who did it? And he passed the info on to, my info on to the guy and then we started talking and then he said, can you give me a bunch of drawings? And I said, yes. And then I submitted a ton of drawings. And then he said, oh, do you have any tour stories? Or can you add some tour stories to these things? And then I wrote the stories and, uh, actually had a lot less drawings in it. It started as a, a book of illustrations and then it turned into more of a writing book and then that uh, both. Um, and then recently he wanted to reprint it, but he wanted me to change some of the drawings and it came this weird editing thing and I refused, but yeah, I'm glad it exists. Um, and right bloody, bloody publishing, the publisher did a great job. And I was really honored to be part of all this other poets and artists that are on that, that book label. Finally, what can we expect from you coming up? Uh, Sizemore AG band nonsense. Uh, I think this Office Romance record will be this fall. Um, it, 
it's been really fun to make, you know, to write a holiday record in the summertime. Um, but yes, you can check that out. It'll come out this, this winter, probably October, funny enough. Um, and hopefully my wife's film career will, as a, as a director, and we'll write more films together in the future and um, keep it going, keep the film life, keep the film going. Well, Sid, it was a pleasure to sit down with you today. As a fan of Les Savifov and the AG band, I'm always excited to hear from you and what you got going on. So thank you. Thank you so much again. Oh, my God. My pleasure. Thanks for thinking of us. And if you're ever in New York and want to come see the show, just reach out and let me know. Awesome. Thank you so much. That's if you ever have a live audience in the next year. But, yeah, <laughs> you're, you're welcome to come anytime. Awesome. Thank you so much. You're most welcome. Thanks for listening. Catch all upcoming releases from Sid Butler through his record label French Kiss Records and see him weeknights playing bass in the 8G band on Late Night with Seth Meyers on NBC. Hopefully we'll see him back on stage soon playing in Les Savvy Fav. This concludes our broadcast day.